blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, we think of the Beatitudes typically in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are actually seven Beatitudes here in the book of Revelation. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the account of which is found in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. We've seen that this great feast will precede Christ's second coming and that all of heaven will participate and celebrate. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he discusses some truths about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is preparing a place for us. This imagery is not accidental. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. The Old English says many mansions. That was superb in the 17th century because the word mansion from the Latin vulgate meant a room. Today, the word mansion, we, we think of this large palatial home. No, in my father's house, there's many rooms, many apartments, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. First, he's coming to get his bride. He's going to take us where he is. He's going to take us to heaven because we're not going to be here during the time of the tribulation. This is his promise to the bride, and he has been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, and I can't wait to see it. Now, it might seem odd to you, that during these seven years while we're in heaven, we're going to have a time of evaluation. But it's taught in the Scriptures. Here's a chart to help you to visualize it. Right now, we're in the church age. God is gathering a bride for His Son. In one of these days, it could happen today. The last person who's going to become a member of the body of Christ will call upon Jesus in salvation, and the Father will say, go get your bride. The church will be caught up. And this seven-year period that will come, conclude with the second coming, while the tribulation is taking place on earth, the Bema seat of Christ is taking place in heaven. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one will be recompensed for his deeds done in the body. There's coming a day when God is going to evaluate your service, and in the New Testament, it's largely in the local church. Now, some of you are out there and you're leading a Bible study for this organization or that organization. That's all well and good. But if you're not serving in God's local church, you're not putting the emphasis where God puts it. And one of the things He's going to evaluate is your service in the local assembly. And of course, this evaluation is not to see if you get into heaven but based on 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 and verse 12, it's how you will be rewarded in heaven throughout all of eternity. Now, I want you to see the beauty of his bride here in verse 8. Notice what he says. It was given to her to clothe herself in the fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Three descriptive words that describe the bridal robe that each of us will wear. First of all, he says it's fine linen. In the first century, that would have popped off the page. That was a very expensive and beautiful piece of cloth. 
Second, the Bible says that this robe is bright. It's a Greek word that can also be translated shining. There's not a single English word that will capture it. It's a bright robe. It's a shining robe. And third, his bride or his wife is put out there in the margin, literally in the Greek, is also dressed in a clean garment. This word clean is often translated pure in the New Testament. So this beautiful garment that each of God's people will wear in heaven is further defined, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, at first, that may seem a little confusing. As you think, well, why do I have a robe based on my righteous acts? Well, as we've been studying in the Revelation, there are two expressions of the robe that God gives His people when they get to heaven. On the one hand, there's a righteousness that you can never earn or achieve. It's imputed to your account. To go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. So God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin there on the cross, to become sin on our behalf, so that in order that we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God, that's what you need that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Paul tells us, as he writes to the Philippians, that he is planning to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, because that fell short. Paul will say in Galatians 3, unless you obey every single aspect of the law, you're cursed. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, yet here in verse 8, he speaks of the righteous acts of the saints. Understand, on the one hand, God gives you a robe that comes from imputed righteousness. On the other hand, God gives you a robe that is based on how you lived out that imputed righteousness. And the book of Ephesians brings them both together. Listen to this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I will not get to heaven and brag and tell you why I'm there because of anything I've done, because I didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift. Gifts are not earned, they're received. For we, the next verse, are His workmanship, poema. We get our English word poetry. We're God's poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by works, we're saved unto or for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Think about this. When God saved you, he, had a, he has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you know that there are certain goals, certain works, a certain ministry that God has for you today? I don't want to get to heaven and for God to say, well, this is what I wanted you to be and to do, but you only achieved this much. No, I want to walk in the works that God pre- prepared beforehand that I might achieve his purposes for us. Now, God's not putting you under pressure. Understand how this all works out. Paul says God imputes a righteousness to you. It's given as a gift. And when you are justified, you are regenerated. You are made alive in the Holy Spirit. In a moment's time, you become a new creature. Peter says you become a partaker of the divine nature. And that's why the apostle Paul can tell the Philippians, work out your salvation. Don't work for it because you can't earn it. But once you've received it, work it out. Work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So you're justified. You are imputed with righteousness. You are regenerated by the Spirit, made a partaker of the divine nature. And then he is now shaping you. How does he shape you and mold you so that you can achieve the plan that he has through you, for you? By the word of God. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 26, that we're being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. God renews our mind. He, it's his beauty cream, so to speak, the word of God. That's why I'm supposed to preach the Bible on Sunday morning. That's why I don't preach for 12 minutes. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. I open the Word of God. I explain it because God's Word is the tool that will shape your life that you and I might together become what God's called us to as we rely upon the Holy Spirit to pull it off. And then in this beauty treatment, we meet God when He takes us up into heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Right now, we may have some spots and blemishes, but He's going to give us a new robe and that robe will describe and picture the righteous acts of the saints. I remember about a year ago, my granddaughter said, Granddad, will you, will you watch Cinderella with us? I said, okay, I'll watch Cinderella with you. And we watched her there, you know, with ash all over her face and just despised and rejected by her stepmother and her sisters. Now, that's kind of the way we are. We're like our Lord despised and rejected of men. But a day is coming when everything is going to be changed. God is going to make ready his bride, and he is going to give you a robe for your service. The bride will be beautiful. Secondly, the guests will be glad. Not only will the bride be beautiful, the guests will be glad. Now remember, right now, we're just betrothed. The Lord Jesus is going to come take us into heaven, and then after the tribulation is over, he'll take us back to earth for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to tell you that what is in front of us is the best you will ever have imagined in all of human experience. And I know that not just on the basis of the Word of God, but I know that on the basis of my own human experience. Next to the Lord Jesus, there's no one else I love in this world more than my wife, Audrey. She is my bride, and I love her with all my heart. But the love I have for her pales compared to the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And that's why I say the best is yet to come. Look at verse 9. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, when you are a bride at your wedding, a wonderful blessing is to be there for you, but it's also a wonderful blessing if you're a guest and you're invited and you get to share in the magnificence of the moment. Now, certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding, but guests are invited to the bride's wedding. And that's how it worked in a Jewish wedding. And typically it was the groom who invited the guests. Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, we think of the Beatitudes typically in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are actually seven Beatitudes here in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth of the seven. The word makarios, same word as in the Sermon on the Mount. Fulfilled, happy, totally satisfied are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Now, again, the first century wedding typically took place in three stages. First, there was the legal consummation when you were betrothed through that deal that you made with the dad, and you drank from a cup, and you sealed the deal. Jesus there in the upper room, he drank from a cup, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. And then the bridegroom comes back, and he claims the bride for himself. And he takes the bride to heaven, to his father's house. But then there's the marriage supper. And the marriage supper in a first century Jewish wedding was not like our weddings today that last three or four hours. It would typically last a week. And you pick that up as you read John 2 and the first miracle that Jesus performed. And so, in fulfilling the biblical symbol, Christ is completing phase one of the church as people are saved and added to the church day by day. In phase two, he'll come and he'll rapture the church. He'll take us to heaven where we will be evaluated and adorned. And, and then in phase three, oh, he comes back. He brings us back to the earth, and we enjoy the marriage supper. Now, the marriage supper it doesn't take place in heaven. It takes place on the earth. And sometimes you see these pictures of the marriage supper, and it looks kind of almost foggy and kind of dreamy. It's actually going to take place on the earth, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in purely human terms, I suppose you cannot have a wedding without a wedding reception, typically, or without a wedding feast. And in order to prepare for the marriage supper, you need to know who's invited. When you have a wedding, we had one here yesterday, you need to know how many was coming. So you knew how much food to prepare. Well, there's a special blessing, Jesus said, on those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the bride, we're going to have some guests there. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 8 and Luke 13. And the bride, the church, the body of Christ that was birthed on Pentecost, they will be the focus, but there'll be some guests that will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said this in that place, describing the lost religious leaders of his day, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Passages like this have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as guests of the groom. There'll be people like those described in Hebrews 11, the great men and women of faith. There will be men like John the Baptist. John the Baptist described himself, if you remember, as a friend of the bridegroom. But John, of course, was not a part of the church. He lived on the other side of Calvary. He lived ever before the day of Pentecost came, which is why Jesus can say, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He is a great man. I love this guy. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How so? Because John never experienced the blessing of the new covenant that began on the day of Pentecost. But John will be there at this wedding feast, as will be those tribulation saints who find the Lord God. 
And then he concludes the verse by saying, these are true words of God. That's a necessary note of assurance. God wants to give us a note of assurance because in a day, especially in the first century day, where he's writing to these seven churches where it was very dark and their church will end like it began, the scripture affirms. And in these days, when Christians are increasingly persecuted and mocked, God wants us to know these words are true. It may seem too good to be true, but it is going to happen. Finally, the groom will be honored. Not only will the bride be beautiful, not only will the groom, the guests be blessed, but the groom will be honored. That's affirmed in verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, he fell at his feet to worship him. Who's the him? Well, it goes back to the angel who is introduced to us back in the 18th chapter. He falls at the feet of an angel to worship him. Now, why would such a godly man like the apostle John fall down at the feet of an angel and worship an angel? Well, I just think that the scene here is so impressive. I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. He's hearing this vast multitude of people praising God in heaven with all of these hallelujahs. I think he's just lost in the emotion of this marriage supper that is being described. His thoughts are so filled with Christ. He just kind of loses his head and he falls at the feet of an angel. And by the way, sometimes Christians get overruled by their emotions That's why God tells us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so this angel says to him, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The Bible plainly tells us that you're to worship God and him only. You know, when I meet Mormons or JWs, I don't know why I didn't ask. We had four Mormon missionaries show up and meet the pastor on Thursday. That was interesting. But usually I will ask them, do you worship Jesus Christ? And if they were honest, they will always say no. Yet all of heaven in Revelation 5 is worshiping the lamb who's upon the throne And when two women in the garden there fall down and worship Jesus, he doesn't tear his robes and say, don't worship me like Peter did, like Paul did on another occasion. He received the worship. Listen, Jesus, to receive worship, would be aiding and abetting people in idolatry if it was wrong, but it's not wrong, it is right. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship the living God. And then he says in this statement, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the very nature, the very purpose of prophecy is to testify to Jesus Christ, to honor him. Now, how are we going to apply this this morning? Let me make several applications as we close. Number one, I'd like to ask you this question. Is your study of prophecy causing you to fall more in love with Jesus Christ? That's an important question to ask and answer for yourself. Is your study of prophecy causing you to fall more in love with Jesus Christ? You see, the ultimate end of prophecy is not what, but it is who. 
The cults of our day use Revelation and other prophetic passages to try to win unsuspecting people, and they put the emphasis on the what's. But the Bible puts the emphasis on the who. The cults go door to door, and they put the emphasis on something. God puts it on someone. Oh, yeah, just become a part of our group. You'll have a special place if you're in our group. And it's on something, but not on someone to believe. A true Christian will try to get you to receive someone, namely Jesus. And so many people, sometimes even God's people, when they study the revelation, they get so lost in the details. And in the process, they miss Jesus. And I meet these people with their prophecy charts, and they want to argue with me at some fine point on it. But they're missing Jesus. And their whole study is for naught. Jesus is the subject and the aim of all prophecy. And when he arrives, we will not be glorifying something. We will be glorifying and praising someone. Let me ask you a second question this morning. Are you dressed in the right attire? Are you dressed in the right attire for the coming wedding? Think about this seriously while there's still time. If Jesus Christ were to come back today, would you be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Now, I can tell you right now, he will not invite you if you have not received him as your Lord. On another occasion during the public ministry of Christ, the Lord told a parable about the kingdom of God. And if you know the parable in it, the king pictures God the Father, and the son in the parable pictures God the Son. And the people who are invited are people who are dressed up in religious clothes, who are dressed in religious acts, but not in the righteous robe that Christ alone can give. And so Jesus says to this man who comes dressed in religion, but he's not born again, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. One Sunday morning, my wife and I were headed to church, and we called for an Uber driver, and he picked us up, and there he had a Christian radio station with Christian music playing. And so I asked him, I said, are you a born-again Christian? And he just said flat out no, that he was a Roman Catholic. I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. On a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, 100, I'm absolutely positive. How sure are you if you died today that you'd go to heaven? And without missing a beat, he said, let me ask you a question. If God is a God of love, then everyone will go to heaven. Don't you believe that? I said, no, I don't. I said, because God is not only a God of love and mercy and grace, he is a God of justice. And he is a God of wrath. And you can praise God for his wrath because his wrath is totally predictable. It is always against sin. But I said to him, he is a God of wrath. And I said, just as if someone murdered your precious wife, 
You would want justice, and you would want it because you're made in the image of God, and your own nature tells you that that would be right and proper, just as these people in Virginia, though I suppose, though the man is killed, a form of justice has come, but not the ultimate form. That will come when he meets God. I said, God is just, and God will punish your sin like he'll punish mine because he is holy. And I said, and if you don't receive the one who set the penalty, penalty but the same one who paid the penalty, if you do not receive Jesus as your Lord, I said, someday you'll remember that God put in your car a pastor from South Carolina to try to plead with you how you could be forgiven and know Jesus. You will remember this conversation throughout all of eternity. And I pled with him to come to Christ. Do you know Christ today? Have you repented of your sin? The word means to change your mind. Or do you want to hold on to Christ while you hold on to the world? If you're not willing to call sin, sin, you don't need a Savior yet. You must change your mind about sin and embrace Jesus as Lord. And if you are saved, what kind of a robe are you preparing for heaven? Can you say, God is adding righteous acts to my life as I serve his people in the local assembly? Or do you just show up here for church and then leave? God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life, and it's a wonderful plan. And there are works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if we will yield to the Spirit of God and learn the Word of God, then God through us will will and work for his good pleasure. And that's his plan for your life and for mine today. Now, our Holy Father, we love you. We thank you for amazing grace because we deserve nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth but we praise you that you who set the penalty paid it there on Golgotha. Help someone today, Father, who's uncertain to realize that today is the day to be saved because it's not earned. You called it the gift of God. Help someone in simple childlike faith to believe your promise that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help someone to say in simple faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, many here have made that decision, but we're living our lives, but we're not investing them. And the months are turning into years, and our involvement in your local church, which you see as central, is so superficial that if everyone were like us, this church couldn't even function. So, God, may that begin to change today, and may we not be satisfied with what we have accomplished. May we forget what lies behind. May we press forward to what lies ahead. May we achieve all that you have for us, that when we do meet our Savior in heaven, he will be able to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
To listen again to today's message, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV54. Join Dr. Brogy on a tour of the Holy Land in late September and early October 2021. We're making plans right now in light of the anticipated inoculation against COVID-19. If you'd be interested in getting information as it becomes available, sign up at searchthescriptures.org Israel. Tomorrow we begin a look at Jesus' second coming. Join us then as we search the scriptures.